Today we're going to do something a little different. Instead of talking about nature and adventure, we're going to talk about the reasons we still have natural spaces in the first place. Because we have an election coming up. And honestly, we can thank government for a lot of what I talk about in the episodes of this podcast. Without environmental policy, we wouldn't have the nature many of us hold dear. To chat laws and politics, I'm bringing on someone who spent a year in Congress working with environmental legislation. This episode is a little longer than normal because we cover a lot of really important topics, but I hope that you all learn as much from this interview as I did. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science or policy into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. Before we get started with the interview, I'm going to give us all a little government 101. There are three branches of the government, the judicial, the executive, and the legislative. The judicial branch covers the judges, like the Supreme Court. The executive branch is the president, their staff, and federal agencies. The legislative branch is Congress, or the Senate and the House of Representatives. Keeping to simple concepts, basically the legislative branch makes the laws, the judicial branch interprets what the laws mean, and the executive branch makes sure the laws are upheld. This way, all the branches have some say in the actual law. When it comes to environmental policy, that just means any law that is related to humans and the environment. And yes, that's very broad. In the U.S., the 1970s were the sweet 16 of environmental policy. Congressional Democrats and Republicans came together with acts like the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Water Act. Before the 1970s, we can trace nature's political history all the way back to 1916, when the National Park Service was created. So now that we're 104 years from the government that created national parks, and 50 years from the government that led the U.S.'s modern environmental movement, what does environmental policy look like today? And what do our elected politicians have to do with that policy? These are big questions that are hard to answer in a single podcast episode, but my guest certainly takes a stab at it. So our guest today is Tori Bahi, who I know from my wonderful time on the sailing vessel Orion. But Tori has an amazing life outside of obviously being a rad sailor. Tori, why don't you give a little bit of background on yourself? Hello. Oh my gosh. I feel so cool just being on a podcast. As Kate mentioned, I'm Tori Bahi. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. I was born and raised in Arizona, kind of in the Phoenix area, but I've lived in a number of different places. I've lived in California for school. I've lived in DC for a little over a year. And I'm currently in the Pacific Northwest and getting used to this fall, quote unquote, fall weather (laughs) and lots of rain. I have a bachelor's and master's from Stanford University with a background in environmental science, marine science and conservation. And I'm currently working in environmental consulting at the moment. So one of the things that I think is, I mean, obviously everything you've done is really cool, but this especially I think is amazing. You spent a year working for Congress. What were you doing and what were your experiences there? I worked for Congress from February of 2017 to January of 2018. And this opportunity came up through a one-year fellowship through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And it was a one-year fellowship that was really trying to get scientists who were in marine science or kind of like freshwater sciences, like the Great Lakes, 
to come to DC and learn about the executive branch or learning more about the legislative process, working for the Senate or working for the House of Representatives. And I think for me, for me, policy was just like this big idea. So I joined this fellowship really wanting to just learn. I came in thinking, I'm going to absorb as much information as possible. I'm going to ask a ton of questions. And I was very fortunate to land in an office for a California representative whose district was on the coast, which I thought was really great. I knew the district, which was awesome. And this representative was new. This was their first term in Congress. So I'm like, oh, great. We're all going to be learning together. And just like kind of to give you a background of what an office looks like, And like, just to note, I'm talking about the House of Representatives. My knowledge is primarily based in that. The Senate has its own set of rules, which I'm not as familiar with. But my office, I think, is pretty representative of just like what most House of Representatives offices feel. But you come into your representative's office, and there's typically about seven to 10 people that work in that office. You'll have people that do some of the administrative work. You'll have people that do the scheduling for the representative. I have like a communications director, but there's typically about four to six people that deal with issues that deal with different topics. And each office is different in how they separate that. But for our office, because I had a background in, in environmental science, I handled the natural resources issues. And that's like thinking about land issues, thinking about freshwater, the ocean. So those are issues that I worked with. And essentially, if something pops up in the news, if there's a bill that falls under your topic area, it's essentially your responsibility. And each representative is typically on like two committees. So when I started, the representative was in the agriculture committee and the natural resources. So because of natural resources, I was the staffer that staffed them in all the different like committee meetings and hearings. So I had to be prepped for those as well. There's a ton of research, like a ton of calling people like, hey, I have a question on X issue. Can you help me out? And I'll have like a list of questions, doing research online. There's just a lot of information gathering. Did you love it or hate it? (sighs) There was sometimes I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And like, here I am in my high heels and wearing my grandmother's jewelry, walking down this colonialist society, you know, and feeling that. But then there was moments where I was just like, oh my gosh, this kind of sucks. It can wear you down a lot. And DC is one of those cities that is constantly on. There are some very dedicated people that work on the Hill and I commend them so much. I'm really thankful that I did this opportunity, but I don't think that I would want to work for Congress again, if I'm being completely honest. (laughs) That's fair. It's a good way to look at it. Like thinking, okay, I did it. I got this opportunity. I learned, which is what you went into it wanting to do anyway. And now you can take that knowledge and do cool things like guest star on Friends Podcasts and talk about it. Exactly. (laughs) So how does an environmental bill get passed into law? That is a great question. And I did not know the answer to this question when I started. I was like, was it uh, Schoolhouse Rock? Was yeah. it, it like, I'm just a bill. And I was like, okay, cool. Didn't really pay attention to that video. Um, so I'm going to try to break it down because there's a lot of steps. It all starts with an idea. And that idea can come from the district, can come from a constituent. Maybe there's a plot of land that needs to be saved from development. 
So, you know, Kate, you're this, you're this person, this constituent that goes to their representative and just like, hey, there's this dope piece of land. We need to save it. And you rally your friends in the community and everyone's like, representative so-and-so, like, we need you to save this plot of land. And the staffers in the office will be like, okay, this is the idea that we have to save this plot of land. So then they're going to start drafting up the bill. And then there's a lot of external conversations that kind of happen between the office that's introducing it and the different committees. And so you kind of talk with them and be like, hey, heads up, I'm going to be introducing this bill. We want your support on this. And so those are like kind of just like background conversations that happen. And then the member will introduce it into the hopper, which I think is hilarious, but there's just like box on the house floor called the hopper and they'll put it in there and it gets introduced. And then from there, it's a lot of the background work where it's introduced into Congress, it gets a number and there's like a legal team that will read through the bill and based on the language will say, okay, this bill should go into this committee. So a lot of like public lands and stuff, they'll be like, okay, this goes into natural resources. So then they'll like, shoom, like shoot it off to that committee. The committee will have it, they'll review it. And for the most part, they should know that this is coming. So then whoever's office introduced it, that staffer will work with that committee and it's now in the committee's hands. And committees, you typically will, that's what you see clips of a lot of time on the internet where there's someone testifying and there's a member who is sitting behind this fancy looking table and they're asking them questions. Those are typically committee hearings. During this committee, the committee will look through and kind of figure out what their sense is. And they'll draft up this memo and they'll kind of talk with one another and like figure out what bills are kind of contentious and things that we're going to are going to get a hearing things are going to get voted on and then there's some bills that are like smaller that both sides are like yeah we're fine with that so let's say you have a bill let's say the plot of land kate that you want to protect the other side to like we hate that plot of land we do not want it to get protected so that would be a contentious bill and so when you come to a committee the member will have to hear for testimony from people. And sometimes those are scientists. Sometimes those are, maybe there's like a rancher that lives next to that plot of land. So you'll have people that testify. And those people will give a couple minute testimony. And then the members have an opportunity to ask questions. And kind of the effectiveness of the witnesses definitely vary. I think I've heard testimonies from people who, you know, are saying like, I have lived on this land for my whole life, my family generations back have, and it's very personal. And then you'll have ones where it is a scientist who comes in with a lot of graphs. And I do have to tell you that, you know, the scientists who come in with a lot of graphs, a lot of the members kind of glaze over. And so I think finding that balance between being scientifically accurate, but also providing that real world human experience because people react to people. They don't really react to static images. So I think finding that balance is really important. And I think that's something that scientists are still working on. I think it's getting a little better, but that's just something to, to recognize. But let's say we have the testimony, the members will ask you, Kate, some questions and you'll answer them. And then the bill gets voted on. And if it passes out of the committee, then it gets shot off to the House floor. And they'll create a schedule of like, hey, here are the bills that are going to get 
debated, voted that week. And they try to, they usually tell us these things about like a week in advance, typically. Um, so, you know, for our office, every Monday afternoon, we had a staff meeting and it was like, hey, here are the five bills that we're voting on this week. Okay, Tori, this one's a natural resources. Do research on that and let us know if this is a yes vote or a no vote. So I would have to do that research as well. So you'll have this bill that gets on the House floor. And some bills, again, that aren't really contentious, can get bundled up together. And the, a whole package of bills will get passed. And like I said, these are typically non-contentious bills that both sides, Democrats and Republicans, have been like, yeah, we're chill if that passes. But then you'll have the more contentious issues that are like, no, we want to debate this. So you could, you know, your member that you've submitted your bill to can be like, this is an important piece of land that we should preserve for many generations. It offers these benefits. And then the opposition could be like, this place is garbage and there's a coal reserve right underneath it. We need to extract it. So you could have this debate back and forth. And then at some point your debate minutes are up. And then that's when they do the big voting. And so there's certain times of the day that they'll do voting for members where all the members come, they have like a little card that's like their ID card, they'll stick it in this machine and they'll press like yay, nay, or no vote. Um, let's say your vote passes, yay! Woo! That's only half of it. So then, oh, no. yeah, so you've gone through the House of Representatives, like, yeah, thumbs up. Um, but now it has to go to the Senate. And that's, again, that checks and balances within Congress. One chamber can't just be like, we're going to submit all these bills. It has to go to the other chamber. It has to go to the Senate. And the Senate has their own process. And they'll go through and vote on it. And let's say that the senators are like, this, yo, this is a dope piece of legislation. We're going to pass this. So they pass it. Yay! So then that bill gets sent to the president. And typically, the president will get informed of what the upcoming legislation is. So both sides will typically know of like, okay, if we send this to president, blah, 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 it's going to get signed or it's not going to get signed. And presumably, you don't really submit a piece of legislation that will get vetoed. I mean, you could potentially do it to send a message of like, oh, this president doesn't care about this. But it's usually like you send bills that you know are going to get passed. So there's three ways for a piece of legislation to become a law. One, the president signs it. Sweet. Cool. Two, they can veto the bill. And then if the two chambers by two thirds vote say we want this bill, they can override the president's decision. The third is that the president just does nothing. And if they don't sign it within 10 days, the bill only becomes a law if Congress is still in session. Whoa, um, that's the stakes a little bit. Yeah, so there's these different mechanisms and it's that whole checks and balances between the legislative branch and the executive branch. And within the legislative branch, there's a checks and balances between the two chambers. And I forgot to mention that if you have a bill that passes through the House of Representatives and the Senate's like, you know, we actually want to change this sentence here. Any changes have to be agreed upon by both chambers. But yeah, that's kind of just like the quick version <laughs> of how a bill becomes a law. But, you know, it's a lot. And there's a lot of steps where things can get held up. And part of it is just the procedure of this whole process. Part of it is political. Part of it is it, just like timing. And so as a staffer, 
you have to be really in tune with those things. And obviously, as you're there longer, you start to know more. But that might be, you know, as a as the public, you might be like, okay, this environmental organization is like, call your representative to vote yes or vote no to protect blah, blah, blah. And you're like, didn't I really call them like two, three years ago about this? And that's because after a session ends, it's like a blank slate. So then when the new session opens, everyone will reintroduce their bills. So if it didn't pass the previous session, they'll reintroduce it. So that's why you might be like, didn't we already say no to this thing like years ago? Or, you know, there's some issues that are very persistent and that's just because the members keeps reintroducing it. But the kind of bummer part is that when you reintroduce it, it has to go through the whole process all over again. So the staff for the Natural Resources Committee, there's a lot of bills that have come through. They're like, yeah, we've written so many memos about this because it's come through the committee so many times. So that's why as the public, you might be like, okay, we've totally talked about this so many times. And that's just because after the session ends, everything gets renewed. Cool. So aside from scientists having the ability to testify on a bill, how much science gets wrapped up into this lawmaking process? It comes at different points. So I'd say that at the beginning, when you're talking about this like plot of land, you could talk to the staffer and be like, these are the reasons why it should be protected. And that way you can give some scientific evidence to that. And I guess kind of the the downside is that there is no checkbox of like, this helps increase air quality. This helps increase quality of life. There's no like check mark. So at the beginning, I would say that if people want to protect something or want a law to happen, there is a lot of background work that has to be done. And that can happen either from the community or constituent level. It can also happen at the staffer level. And I think it honestly depends on the member. I think if a member is like, okay, we need to have some talking points, which I mean, they're always going to have talking points. But if they're like, we want some scientific studies, some scientific talking points, then that's when the office could do that. But one thing I do want to have everyone keep in mind is that the sad reality is that most of these members, their backgrounds are in like legal work, public service. The last time they took any science courses was high school or college. And for some of them, that's 30, 40 years. And just like anything else, if you don't engage with it a lot, you lose that knowledge. And not to sound pessimistic, but when you have people who have been in power for decades who have a very strong stance on anti-science and things like that, it's really hard to pull them back. It's what I found incredibly frustrating when I worked on the Hill of like, what, what, I, I don't understand. Your constituents are perpetually being harmed by these hurricanes, by this coastal flooding, by these heat waves. And at some point it's like, you know, just forget that it's climate change. Just forget that. Focus on the people. How do you want to protect your people? And again, going back to the science and thinking about those meetings that you have with constituents, I really loved it when I had organizations coming and they're talking about maybe like fisheries and they would give me a one page flyer of just facts of like, here are the things that you should know. 
which I think is really great because there's only so much time in the day that I can dedicate to actual research. And it's really hard. I'm sure that, you know, to go through all these scientific articles and like parse out, you're like, I'm going through this like 50 page article and I need this one sentence, you know? So for people to kind of do that background research is really helpful for a staffer. So many applause (laughs) staffers right now because that's so it's so insane that you that the responsibility for all of that research falls on you guys and I mean obviously you have the wonderful people who come in and give you that help and give you those sources but just the amount of time that has to go into you researching that one decision is incredible Mm -hmm. you've talked a lot about why it's really hard to pass an environmental law I feel like in the media lately we've just been hearing so much about environmental laws getting torn down why is it so much easier to take down one of these laws there is just like this whole back and forth of just like how do we view the environment do we think of it as kind of like a haven do we think of it as like all of these ecological benefits do we think of it as a place where we can restore ourselves and save for future generations or do we think of it as Earth has given us a resource and we have mouths to feed, we have cars to build, homes to build. We need to extract it. So I think there's that difference of like, how do we view nature in general? And like, obviously, this just goes to say that, you know, how we manage nature and like do those laws is a very like colonial way of thinking of things, you know, very very colonial way of thinking of things. So like that has that whole implication. I am someone who is indigenous. I'm not saying that all indigenous people were the greatest caretakers of land. We were, we extracted, we did. And maybe some communities did a better job at balancing Maybe some people didn't and then learned like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do that. But there is that learning process. And I think when settlers came over, they're like, oh, dope. We've already like screwed up the UK. So like, let's go to this new place, go to the East Coast. And the Appalachians are like, oh, yeah, look at all these trees. Like, this is great. So there is that opportunity. And when you go out west and there's all these like mineral deposits, uranium is big thing on my, my nation. And they're like, you need that uranium for some <laughs> nuclear weapons and like nuclear energy and stuff. So it was a land for the taking. And I think we never got out of that mindset. I think it's a really good segue too for me to get on the high horse of telling everybody to go vote. Please go vote. If you don't know how to vote, you can contact me on any of my social media. I will help you figure out how to go vote. Please, your vote matters. Your voice matters. Go vote. Absolutely. And just knowing that voting is such a privilege. When you think back, I think recently it was like the 100 year anniversary of like women's suffrage. Just like to note that even though it was women's suffrage, Indigenous people were not able to vote till much later. So just thinking about other countries where women can't vote or certain people can't vote. While not everyone in our country can vote, there are so many that can. And our current government is definitely in the extraction camp of the environmental spectrum. Since coming into office, the Trump administration has undone a lot of environmental protections in order to give more freedom to big businesses and industries, like fossil fuel companies. In the past three years, 68 environmental laws have been taken apart or weakened, and another 32 are on their way to that fate. Most of this policy was dedicated to keeping our air clean, with resource extraction as a close second. 
If you feel that nature should be protected, that we should be breathing clean air and drinking clean water, or that we should be taking more action toward climate change adaptation and environmental justice, your voice can be heard in this election. And that's at the state and local levels, as well as in the national election. Do you have a favorite environmental law and what does it do? Oh, I think one is the National Marine Sanctuary Act, just passed in 1972, also because I love the ocean so much. And with the National Marine Sanctuary Act, you can still recreate, but it definitely helps prevent a lot of the degradation that happens there. It protects more than 600,000 square miles of Great Lakes and marine areas. I believe there's like 14 sanctuaries total with two national monuments. And obviously the ocean's massive and we only know so much about it. So if we can just try to protect these really biodiverse areas, I think that's a great first step. A lot of people aren't able, they don't have the privilege to see the ocean. I know a lot of kids from the Navajo Nation have never seen the ocean. So for the people that do have access to it, for the people that do have that power, I think it's really important to preserve because a ton of food comes from the ocean and think about like oxygen. I listened to your kelp podcast, like yeah, yeah. oxygen, you know, we need to protect these kelp forests. And I think having an act like the National Marine Sanctuaries is just the way to just say like, hey, you can recreate responsibly, but we should really protect these areas to help hold this whole ecosystem. Okay, so last question. Acknowledging that environmental protection is a very colonial idea, do you have a favorite place that has been protected by a government? I am so conflicted because, you know, I also love national parks. I have like a little national park passport. I do the junior ranger program. So there's dual parts of me. That is one, public lands belong to people, but it begs the question of which people which people get to access these things, which people have the opportunities to visit these places. So part of me is like, land shouldn't really belong to people, but we're in that society where lands do. There's obviously private land, there's state land, there's federal land. But I think public lands give people the opportunity to explore their backyards. They allow them to see different parts of the world that if we had the chance would have just like demolished Um, I last year did a ton of road trips to different national parks and at that time was just very focused on just like my mental health and being outdoors and being away from the city and you know kind of being able to just like focus in on the natural environment and I think one of my favorite places is definitely the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon was the first national park that I ever went to as a kid and I remember I was 11 years old it was the summer between fifth and sixth grade. And my mom was like, we're going to hike the Grand Canyon. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Growing up with a single parent, you had to do these things because the parents like, what am I going to do with you? So yeah, we got a little bit of gear and we drove up to South Rim. And I just remember going down and I was just like, holy crap, this is, this is a big hole. And there's so many layers, like a cake. And I was just like, oh, this, this really is steep. Like, ooh, don't fall, you know? And <laughs> We got to the bottom in Phantom Ranch and they had some of like the best chocolate cake in the world. I'd just like to add <laughs> and like the best lemonade ever. Um, we spent like two days there just like relaxing and playing board games and reading. And I made postcards and we played around in the river and, and then we hiked back up. And as you keep going up, you notice that the noise level starts to get louder because people are kind of coming down just a little bit into the, into the canyon and then they come back up. 
And I don't remember the statistic that the park rangers told me, but you know, they get millions of people that visit the Grand Canyon. Most of them spend like less than three hours there. And I personally don't think you can do the Grand Canyon justice of just driving there, looking over and you're like, cool, and just like going back into your car. It's just, it's an experience. But I always remember that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is super cool. We got to the top. We got some ice cream. My mom lost the car keys. So there was that whole (laughs) adventure too. Um, But we went again when I was in high school. And I've been wanting to go back ever since. But it's just one of those places that, you know, people always say like, ugh, the desert, like it's hot. And there's like scorpions and there's just rocks. And which that's a fairly accurate representation, but there's so much more. There's so much more to get out of it. It just takes a moment to just put the phone down, put the camera down, and you'll start to hear the birds and you'll start to smell everything. If it starts to rain, just that, oh, the smell of the desert after it rains is my favorite thing. When we're thinking about environmental conservation, a lot of the times what makes us want to conserve things is these moments. And I would love if I have kids to take my kids there and be like, we're going hiking, whether you like it or not, for them to have that same experience for me to take my little nieces and nephews and be like, look at these cool things and look how old this place is. And it was made by this river. It was made by water. Our desire to save the environment doesn't come from us using a shovel to forcibly make these decisions. It happens over time being like that Colorado River, it just, over years, it just made that big impact. And I think for us, starting from the 70s, when that big environmental movement happened, just taking that gradual approach, and sometimes we do need a little more of a rush to go through to make that really big impact. But I think kind of it's it's the long-term game, which is good and bad at the same time. But these are things worth protecting. I think if people know that and keep that in their hearts, I think that's what's really important. And you just have to convey that passion, that emotion to other people and hoping that one day maybe you can change that person's point of view who's like oh cool hole like let's go you know to be like no like this is amazing like you're literally looking through time you people are like let's time travel you can go to the grand canyon and you can time travel there okay and get ice cream at the same time and chocolate cake so like it's all a (laughs) win-win and now for our episode recap While we often think of laws as the brainchildren of our representatives in Congress, we can actually send a great deal of thanks to their staffers. When an idea for a law comes into the House, whether it's from communities outside of politics or from the representative themselves, it's the staffers that are on call to research the bills. And depending on how contentious that bill is, that research can make its way all the way up to a vote on the House floor, then a vote in the Senate, and finally for a signature or a veto from the president's desk. Environmental policy is the laws that ensure we're living on a healthy planet, give us the opportunities to recreate in nature, and help define what resources we can use and where we can get them from. These are some pretty grand topics, and the laws within those topics often change depending on who is in power in the three branches of government. Just like when settlers came to this country from Europe, we're seeing our current government support resource extraction rather than resource protection or sustainable management. Most of you listening to this podcast are probably not politicians. So as people not directly sitting on a government seat or working in the office of an official, what can we do to ensure our favorite places continue to be there for adventures in the future? Well, we can vote. We can vote for politicians that will protect the environment and respect our place in it. 
Our upcoming election is even more tumultuous than usual, since COVID-19 has upended all our lives. But that means your vote matters even more this year, as so many decisions about our future ride on the people we bring into local, state, and federal governments. If you are unsure how to vote safely, feel free to contact me through GoForthInScience.com and we can figure it out together. To find out specifics about which environmental policies have been weakened in the last three years, you can check out the New York Times article, The Trump Administration is Reversing 100 Environmental Rules, by Nadia Popovich, Livia Albeck-Ripka, and Kendra Pierre-Louis. Thanks for listening, and go vote!